Hi everyone, I'm Anthony Greco, Director of Exhibits and Interpretive Planning at the Buffalo History Museum. Today's story involves a notorious duo whose criminal exploits rival that of the famed Bonnie and Clyde. Their holdups, heists, and robberies grabbed national headlines and captured the attention of everyday Americans. The outlaws were living life on the lam, running from the law, and targeting banks and jewelry stores along the way. However, their crime spree would come to an abrupt end in Buffalo during the spring of 1926. That's when the fate of Richard Reese Whitmore, a.k.a. the Candy Kid, was put in the hands of a Western New York jury. Before we get to the story, I want to take just a moment to mention a brand new exhibit at the museum called To Rescue the Color, Salvaged Renderings of the Rainbow City. This limited-time display features seven large-scale architectural color studies created in 1901 by Pan American Exposition Director of Color C.Y. Turner. These beautiful, oversized renderings were salvaged by a colleague of Turner's after the exposition and donated to the History Museum. In recent years, the museum has worked to conserve and frame the pieces, restoring them to their original beauty. So stop in, see them, and while you're here, be sure to check out all the museum has to offer. And remember that our admission is pay what you wish, so we hope to see you soon. And one more thing, it's that time of year again. Buffalo Spree Magazine is compiling its Best of Buffalo Awards for 2022. So please take a moment to vote for the Buffalo History Museum podcast in the Best Podcast category. We won last year, now let's make it two in a row. I put a link to the survey in the notes for this episode. Best podcast category can be found on page four of the survey. And without further ado, here's today's story. The 20s were a decade of rapid economic growth and social change. It was an age of consumerism, of fashion, and of music, in which America sought to get back to normal after the turbulent days of World War I. The rising use of automobiles, electrical appliances, telephones, and radio ushered in an era of perceived wealth and ease, and everyone wanted a piece of it. Booming industry, innovation, and the rising stock market created a new generation of wealth. However, this period of social and economic upheaval left much of the working class behind. Some were willing to do whatever it took to climb their way out of poverty, to get a fleeting taste of the high life by any means necessary. The morning of October 29, 1925 started as any other day in downtown Buffalo. Near Main and North Division streets, hundreds of people milled about among the local offices and shops. Charles Clifford and Louis Yarrington, both employees of the Marine Trust Company, pulled their armored car up to the bank and prepared to unload parcels of cash, when suddenly gunshots pierced the air. 
gang of men swarmed the car with their guns drawn. They ordered Mr. Clifford, the driver, to put his hands up. But before he could comply, he was shot at point-blank range, killing him instantly. Chaos erupted with the blasts. Pedestrians screamed and ran for cover as bullets shattered storefront windows and even cracked the bank's marble entrance. The thieves began unloading cash from the car while nearby police officers raced to the scene and began firing their sidearms. Officer John Bunce happened to be on traffic duty at the corner of Main Street and North Division, only 100 feet away and immediately sprang into action. A guard inside the bank saw what was going on and sprinted toward the bank car, firing his weapon as well. One bandit fled down Washington Street on foot with a cash bag in his hand. Officer Bunce gave chase, as did bank employee Louis Yarrington. One of the bullets hit the bandit's wrist, causing him to drop the cash. At that moment, the bandit's getaway car pulled up. A passenger inside took aim at Yarrington and shot him in the chest, piercing his lung. He collapsed to the ground as a nearby shoe shiner ran over and tended to him before he could be rushed to the hospital. Later that night, Yarrington died from his injuries. The getaway car was a black 1925 Buick. It escaped down North Division towards Ellicott Street before turning north. Policemen sped closely behind until a poorly timed trolley crossed over Washington Street, blocking their pursuit. Once it had passed, the police took chase once more, but the thieves had vanished. Now, the cash bag left behind by the wounded bandit during the escape was holding $24,000. Still, even without that, the gang made off with over $93,000 in cash. They pulled off what the Buffalo Courier newspaper would call the, quote, largest and most daring holdup in the history of the city. And a $10,000 bounty was put on their heads, dead or alive. By the next day, police theorized that the heist was likely a collaboration between some of the city's most dangerous criminals. A young bank employee had witnessed the holdup and identified the man who dropped the stolen cash as 25-year-old Mike Sparazzi. Sparazzi, a native Buffalonian, was first sent to a correctional institution at the age of 14, only to escape shortly thereafter. He had already committed several robberies and burglaries before falling in with an infamous group known as the Harris Gang. The Harris Gang was a band of outlaws led by none other than Harry Harris. According to the Buffalo Courier, Harris had already committed a series of crimes unparalleled up until that time in the criminal annals of this region. Already well known to local police, Harris was facing a 40-year sentence for robberies in Detroit and Boston. That is, if they could catch him. A 19-year-old witness named Charles Welling was working in a nearby garage at the time of the attack on the bank truck. And when presented with the mugshot photo, he was able to identify the driver of the getaway car that was parked in the garage as one George Dutch Anderson. 
Anderson was among the most notorious criminals in the entire country. He had quite an impressive resume as a pickpocketer, safe blower, and bank robber, topping it off with a $2 million mail truck robbery and a double murder just two years earlier. As word of the holdup spread across the city, rumors, tips, and accusations began flooding into law enforcement. Police were confident that Anderson and the gang had teamed up as a number of witnesses claimed they had spotted the pair around town in the weeks leading up to the robbery. During the initial investigation, over two dozen witnesses gave statements to the police, 10 of whom declaring they had spotted Harris and another saying they'd seen Anderson. But Buffalo Police Chief Higgins wasn't completely convinced of Anderson's involvement and began to drift from police's initial theory of collaboration. After all, why would the 45-year-old Anderson want to play second fiddle to the 25-year-old Harris? What's more, the crime just seemed too sloppy for the more experienced Anderson. Just days after their initial claim, police began second-guessing their own theory that the men had conspired together. Months passed with little progress in the case, and though various members of the Harris gang were picked up during that time on unrelated charges, police were unable to get any information from them regarding the heist. Until... On March 19, 1926, investigators finally caught a break. That day, nearly 400 miles away in New York City, eight members of another infamous group, the Whitmore Gang, were rounded up after a year on the run. The gang and its leader, Richard Reese Whitmore, had, for over a year, pulled bank heists and robbed jewelry stores throughout the Northeast and Mid-Atlantic region. And after only five days in custody, one of these men, Anthony Palladino, made a shocking confession. Newspapers reported that while being interrogated, Palladino was repeatedly asked about the Buffalo bank job. Over and over, police asked, Did you take part in the Bank of Buffalo robbery? I refused to answer, Palladino responded. Did you take part in the Bank of Buffalo robbery? Again, Palladino denied any knowledge. This continued on and on, and finally, when asked, do you know anything about it? Palladino replied, I might. Before long, Palladino had penned a 22-page confession in which he linked the Whitmore gang to numerous bank jobs and jewelry heists. He also fessed to the Buffalo bank job. He stated that it was he, along with fellow gang members Leon Kramer and Richard Whitmore himself. Richard Reese Whitmore, the gang's namesake, was a lifelong criminal. Only 25 years old, he had already done several stints in New York's Elmira Reformatory and had a rap sheet filled with petty thefts and burglaries. In 1921, he married 18-year-old Margaret Messler of Baltimore. Now, neither Richard nor Margaret came from wealthy families, but both had dreams of making it big by any means necessary. In 
Only eight days after their wedding, Whitmore broke into his neighbor's house, entering through a window. He piled their clothing and fine jewelry into a suitcase before making his great escape through the front door. Within 24 hours, Whitmore was arrested, earning him a stretch at the Maryland State Penitentiary. After he was released from prison in 1924, Whitmore reunited with his wife in Baltimore. It seems time on the inside had done little to reform him, however. Shortly after getting out of prison, Richard and Margaret pulled off their first heist together, taking $350 from a confectionery. Over the next few weeks, Richard rounded up friends and future accomplices from the penitentiary, and the Whitmore gang was born. The following months were marked by a string of successful robberies, as the gang plucked cash from unsuspecting businesses up and down the East Coast. The gang's crime spree came to an abrupt end on January 5, 1925, when Whitmore and four other men were arrested in Philadelphia after robbing a saloon. After tacking on additional robbery charges, Whitmore and his men were sentenced to 15 years behind bars again at the Maryland State Pen. But Whitmore was a resourceful man, and just nine days into his sentence, he escaped by fatally striking a prison guard named Robert Holtman with a metal pipe and stealing his keys. After escaping, Whitmore and his crew carried out at least a dozen heists at various jewelry stores and banks over the next 11 months. In mid-April of 1925, newspapers blamed the gang for a string of holdups throughout Baltimore. They also stole $9,000 from a bank messenger and boosted another $75,000 in gems from a New York City jeweler. Each crime perpetrated by Richard and his men made headlines, putting a ton of heat on Whitmore with the long arm of the law hot on their trail. Still, the gang was sure to take some time to celebrate their jobs, An article of Smithsonian Magazine notes that between heists, there were, quote, all-night parties, luxury apartments, and fast cars. On January 11, 1926, the Whitmore gang successfully pulled off what would be their final heist and would spend the next two months celebrating and spending their ill-gotten gains. But night after night of excessive partying and careless spending, was making the gang sloppy and leaving a paper trail for police. In the early hours of March 19th, Whitmore and his business associates ran out of a nightclub and into their car, just as police patrolling the area happened past the club. Police, a bit suspicious, began to tail them. When Whitmore realized they were being followed, he opened fire and a shootout ensued. When the smoke had cleared, the police had gotten the better of Whitmore and took he and two of his accomplices into custody. In jail and facing lengthy sentences, members of the gang began to talk. Using the information supplied in confessions, 
New York's Daily News reported that police were able to round up the remaining members of the gang that night. Milton Shuffles Goldberg, along with brothers Jacob and Leon Kramer, were found hiding in a nearby safe house. Margaret Whitmore was apprehended at the hotel embassy. When it was discovered, she was staying under an assumed name, May Collins. Authorities found three revolvers, three black silk masks, and stacks of cash in her luggage. While in custody, Richard Whitmore confessed to the January 19th jewel heist and implicated Anthony Palladino in the robbery as well. Acting on this information, police picked up Palladino from his Brooklyn apartment and brought him into the station, leading to his eventual confession. It was around this time when the newspapers dubbed Whitmore as the Candy Kid. Smithsonian Magazine tells us that it was in reference to his sweet-talking ways and, perhaps, his illicit drug use. The papers initially nicknamed Margaret as the Bob-Haired Bandit, but as time went on, her alias evolved into Tiger Lil, and eventually Tiger Girl. Each newspaper report describes Margaret as pretty with a perfectly styled blonde bob and always dressed in the latest and most expensive fashions. On March 25th, Anthony Palladino's confession was made public. As reported in the Buffalo Courier, his confession revealed intimate details of scores of robberies that have puzzled police and told of a criminal enterprise so completely organized that it overlooked not the slightest step in the planning of a robbery and disposal of the loot. Each member of the criminal syndicate had a different role from studying patrols and deliveries to scoping up businesses and getaway cars. Others maintained detailed records of illegal offenses of who bought and sold their stolen goods. Now, once Palladino's confession reached the press, Whitmore offered a plea. In exchange for a full confession, his wife, Margaret, was to go free. No strings attached. And at first, law enforcement considered the offer. However, after a couple days, the district attorney discovered that some of the details in Whitmore's confession were patently false and rescinded the deal. In his confession, Whitmore had pinned most of the blame on Palladino and another gang member in order to shield the Kramer brothers from prosecution. When word of this got back to Palladino, he sang like a canary, as the saying goes, Apparently, both men were quite familiar with the old adage, there's no honor among thieves. Now, it's at this point that the story heads back to Buffalo, the city to which Whitmore was transported by authorities on April 1st, 1926. The papers covered the arrival of his train, describing Whitmore as being dressed in the height of fashion, in a dark overcoat, hat, and dark suit. Some papers even took note of his physical appearance, describing the detainee as being very handsome. 
Once off the train, he was handcuffed to Detective Sergeant James E. Quigley and escorted through a crowd of reporters and photographers trying to get a word or a glimpse from the notorious criminal. Incensed by the mob, Whitmore struck a camera from the hands of a reporter and sent it crashing to the pavement. The suspect then pulled up his collar so that it covered his face and tugged at the arm of his jacket to conceal his shackled wrist. In a Buffalo Courier interview, Detective Roche described the Candy Kid as a moody man, being pleasant as sunshine one minute and then reverting the next to deep gloom and savage replies to questions. Throughout the legal process, Whitmore maintained his innocence and appeared confident that he would somehow beat the charges. Meanwhile, Margaret, the tiger girl herself, spent weeks in custody denying any knowledge of the alleged gang members. By mid-April, however, she admitted that she hadn't exactly been forthcoming or truthful during her initial interrogations. Instead, she claimed she'd been under immense pressure from Anthony Palladino's girlfriend to keep her mouth shut. Soon, Margaret came to a deal with law enforcement. In exchange for her cooperation in the investigation, she'd be given immunity from any charges pertaining to the Buffalo bank job. The trial of Richard Reese Whitmore began in Buffalo on April 26, 1926. District Attorney Guy Moore led the prosecution, while W. Bartlett Sumner argued on behalf of the accused. The defendant's father, Richard Whitmore Sr., traveled from Baltimore to be in the courtroom to support his son and recently released daughter-in-law. Speaking to reporters, the elder Whitmore reflected upon his son's life, stating, he was a good boy and was always kind to his family. But it was that horse racing that got him. He stole money to play the ponies. Then came the wine, the women, and the song. The Tiger Girl herself made several appearances in the courtroom. News of the flashy couple and their unwavering devotion to each other throughout their life of crime had earned them quite a bit of notoriety. Large crowds formed outside the courtroom. Spectators and reporters flocked to the corridors hoping to catch a glimpse of the couple, or perhaps news of an actual acquittal. Inside the courtroom, District Attorney Guy Moore was hard, fiery, and sometimes sarcastic, according to courtroom accounts, as he linked positive evidence with circumstances and forged the people's case in what was called one of the most brilliant summations of his career. For the defense, W. Bartlett Sumner called eight witnesses to the stand who testified that they had seen Whitmore in Philadelphia at a birthday party the morning of the robbery. Casting even more reasonable doubt onto the case was another witness statement that placed Whitmore in Baltimore around the time of the Buffalo job. Sumner also attacked the credibility of the prosecution's witnesses. One such witness was Alfred Gugisberg, who was allegedly making a deposit at the bank during the robbery. Perhaps out of desperation, Sumner attacked Gugisberg's character calling to the attention of the jury his recent job termination, his separation from his wife, a stint he did in prison, and a recent head-on car collision. Initially, Gugusberg had identified Harris as the robber. Sumner continued on, 
Did you tell Mike Melendinos you saw a picture of Harry Harris in the paper and thought it was him? Which the witness denied. Sumner then asked, Did you tell him you were going to get $1,500 for testifying in this case and were going to buy an automobile and take him out riding? Gugusberg denied that as well. Another witness, the aforementioned Mike Melendinos, was next on the stand. While fielding Sumner's questions, not only did the witness admit to the court that he too had been convicted of assault and petty larceny, but also confessed that he had vacationed with Chief Detective Roche. Melendinos admitted that yes, Gugusberg did in fact state he would be paid for testifying in court. However, Melendinos denied that he would receive a payment himself. It seemed as though the prosecution's case was about to crack. Sumner followed up with bank bookkeeper Frank Kirsch, who testified that Gugusberg had not, as it turned out, even had an account at the bank since the previous year. The judge in the case, however, the Honorable Thomas H. Noonan, ruled that there wasn't any evidence of Gugusberg's account being closed. Sumner also asserted that policeman John Bunce, who had been wounded during the shootout, couldn't positively ID Whitmore as the shooter either. During the trial, Judge Noonan and Sumner often clashed, leading to heated exchanges. At one point, out of frustration, Sumner snapped, exclaiming, it's very apparent how the court leans in this case. As the trial came to a close, Sumner became very emotional and teary-eyed, as he urged the jury not to rush to judgment, but rather to think long and hard about the facts in the case. He stood by his assertion that the witnesses were honest but mistaken, adding, we all know how frequently we are mistaken by strangers who take us for someone else. Before the candy kid was led out of the courtroom, guards escorted him over to his wife where he gave the tiger girl a kiss. After only one day of testimony, the case was now in the hands of the jury. The jury deliberated for three hours on that first day, but wasn't able to come to a consensus. When news reached the gathered crowds that the jury was all locked up, the spectators refused to leave. The day came to an end with no resolution. Whitmore was escorted to the nearby Hotel Statler for the night, along with his father, wife, and jury, all under strict guard and supervision. It was a long, restless night for the Whitmores. When court resumed the following morning, Margaret told the courier, quote, I didn't sleep a wink last night, and I don't think I'll be able to sleep tonight either. She sat front row, her face calm and collected, with eyes fixated solely on her husband, and twirled her pocketbook and pearl necklace. The paper described the candy kid as composed and unmoving, his eyes cold and dark. As the media reported on the seemingly deadlocked jury, the trial's second day drew an even larger crowd. A mob of hundreds gathered, shouting out their support for the defendant. Suddenly, the hordes broke through the police lines and swarmed City Hall, forcing law enforcement to retaliate. 
Milling mob storms court, reported the courier. Near riot marks final session of sensational Whitmore murder trial. Deputy sheriffs, police use clubs in effort to disperse would-be spectators. Now, despite the raucous behavior of the crowds, they'd have to show some patience. It would be another 15 plus hours of deliberation before the jury would come back with a verdict and maybe not the one they'd been hoping for. Then, after 29 hours of both trial and deliberation, came the moment of truth. According to the Olean Evening Times, spectators awaited the verdict in tense silence. Whitmore only yawned. He looked haggard, but showed little interest in the proceedings. The jury then informed the court of their decision. In the case of Richard Reese Whitmore, the jury found themselves hopelessly deadlocked, resulting in a mistrial. When the public found out, the thousands outside the courtroom greeted the announcement with wild cheers. Mrs. Whitmore almost swooned. As the jury was dismissed, shouts from the crowd were heard saying, hurrah for Whitmore and hurrah for Tiger Lil. Margaret left the courtroom clutching her father-in-law's arm and burst into tears of joy. But it wasn't time to celebrate just yet. Even during the trial, law enforcement had already made plans to take Whitmore back to Baltimore to face charges should he be found not guilty in Buffalo. When asked about it, the dapper young Baltimore bandit, as papers called him, said, quote, If I'm taken to Baltimore to be tried for murder, I'll beat that charge too. Perhaps he spoke too soon, however, because immediately following the trial, he was extradited back to Maryland. There, he faced a murder charge for the killing of Robert Holtman. Holtman was the prison guard Whitmore killed during his violent escape from the Maryland State Penitentiary. Only this time, he was found guilty after another speedy trial. And his sentence? Death by hanging. In the early hours of August 13, 1926, Richard Reese Whitmore, a.k.a. the Candy Kid, met his fate at the gallows. The Buffalo Evening News reported that his final exchange with his beloved tiger girl was made just hours earlier when, through the bars of his prison cell, he said, Don't mind, Marge. Be brave. My last thoughts will be of you. Outside the prison, the Washington Post reported that some 100 policemen surrounded the penitentiary and kept traffic a block away. There have been rumors and reports that a strong-armed contingent of New York's gangland was to seek a release. For his last meal, Whitmore ate heartily of an especially prepared meal of, quote, strongly Italian flavor. He asked for wine, reminiscent of the sweet cup of life which he tasted in New York's nightlife, but that request was denied. In under two years, from 1925 to 1926, the Whitmore gang managed to steal over $15 million in jewelry, cash, and precious gems when adjusted for inflation. They were also responsible for the deaths of at least six people, 
including Buffalo's Charles Clifford and Louis Yarrington. Now, as for Margaret Whitmore, she moved on from her life of crime. She eventually remarried, settled down in her home city of Baltimore, and disappeared from the public eye. She'd go on to live another 67 years before passing away in 1993, when her death was reported in the Baltimore Sun, there was no mention of the life she left behind. The Buffalo History Museum is sponsored by the National Endowment for the Humanities. The museum receives operating support from Erie County, the City of Buffalo, the New York State Council on the Arts, with the support of Governor Kathy Hochul and the New York State Legislature. Additional support is provided by M&T Bank and from our donors, members, and friends. Today's episode was researched and written by Helen Chandra, edited by Brandon Kennedy, and produced by me, Anthony Greco. As always, be sure to rate, review, and tell your friends about the show. Have a great week, and we will be back soon.